You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 180 of the Common Descent Podcast. Lahayam. Lahayam. (laughs) Podcast where we discuss science, paleontology, earth history, and evolutionary biology. And this episode, we will be discussing filter feeding. Another diets episode. Yeah. This is a fun topic because it is Far more common than a lot of people might realize, than even we really realized going in. This is a way of feeding that a lot of life on Earth does, but does it in many, many different ways. So we will go through what does it mean to filter feed? Mm -hmm. What are some of the different mechanisms of filtration and styles of filtration? As well as what is the evidence of it in the fossil record? What filter feeders have we been able to find or how do we recognize them? And then... What's some of the trends of how something becomes a filter feeder? Yeah, this will be... I always like the diet episodes. We did herbivores back in episode 173. We did sanguivores back in episode 134. Always very cool to talk about. Yeah. So this this is a lot of fun. Had a ton of fun looking this up and learning about it. So therefore, we would like to thank our requesters who asked for this topic, which is Helpless Droid, Taterboy, and Jordy. Thank you very much for leading us down this awesome discussion. All of our episode topics are requested, so if you have topics you'd like to think of, check out the description for a link for our submission form to ask for topics. Before we get into the main episode, some brief announcements. As always, our first announcement is that we have a Patreon. Our Patreon funds the podcast top to bottom, allows us to do all the cool things we're doing. The patrons also get access to extra goodies, extra audio from us, live chats with us, and posts but they also can get shout-outs at certain levels. Like this, we would like to welcome our, some of our newest patrons, Joshua and Drakdrak. Welcome and thank you for your support. If you'd like to sign up for our Patreon and support us, support what we do here at the podcast, you can find that link below as well. This is a great time to do it because we are coming up on the end of the year, and at the beginning of next year, we'll be doing a live stream to celebrate... Seven years of the podcast. Seven years. And we will be announcing the winners of our Patreon draw, where you can win our new patron t-shirt, and the top winner will be getting all of the benefits of the highest Patreon tier. Yes. All you have to do is be a contributing patron on our Patreon at the end of the year. We'll gather all the names, and three will be winners, who will announce on that live stream, and you'll get all sorts of cool goodies. So if you... Have, if you've been considering signing up, now's a great time to do it. And then stay tuned for the end of January on the 28th at 2 o'clock. That's Eastern Time. Eastern Time. We'll be having our live stream where we'll make that announcement. And also announcements about like plans for the year and look back on last year. Yeah, this is not one of our patron-exclusive live streams. This is a public. Anyone can join in live stream. It'll be on YouTube. We'll be posting details soon. Also, with the end of the year coming up, we have the end of the year Q&A. Always fun. Which, the question form is closing today, if you're listening to this on the release day of this episode. (laughs) The form for submitting questions closes on December 10th. Uh, So if you are listening to this right at the start, there might still be time. Yes. (laughs) If you have questions, go ahead and find that link down below. 
And if this is after the fact, then just wait until the end of the December when we will be releasing a Q&A episode where we will answer as many of the many questions you've sent in for a very long special end of the year episode. Those are always fun. Big thanks to everyone who has already submitted questions for it. And thank you, those of you who are going to sneak in just under the wire. (laughs) And then finally, another bit of extra content here at the end of the year, our most recent number four mini episode compilation for our patron episodes just released. For the higher tiers on Patreon, we offer a personalized mini episode on that person's favorite group of animals where we just discuss and geek out about that group and then send it to them. And then after a while, we like to gather up the recent ones into a compilation so that everyone can enjoy geeking out about these cool creatures. Uh, That last one came out just a week before this episode dropped, so it's fresh. Go check it out. And with that, we can wrap up the announcements, move on to our first section, which is the news. Every episode, we like to touch on some recent science news, paleontology, evolutionary biology, earth science, to keep us up to date and keep us all on track with what's happening. David, what's the news? I have news about trilobites. Cool. A lot of trilobites. Ooh, very cool. This is a cool one. This is research published in Papers in Paleontology by Shelley Wernett et al. And we will link in the blog post after this episode. We always put the news links in there. This link will go to an article in Popular Science by Laura Bysis. If you're not familiar with trilobites, if you're one of today's lucky 10,000, trilobites were basically the bugs of the seafloor back in the Paleozoic era. They're these segmented bodies, extremely common fossils, not insects, not crustaceans, kind of their own thing, exoskeleton, the whole nine yards. Trilobites are some of the most abundant and well-studied fossil organisms from the Paleozoic era, especially the early Paleozoic. They are often found in great diversity at specific fossil sites, Mm -hmm. but there are parts of the world where they are less well-studied than others. This study describes a trilobite fauna, so a whole assemblage of trilobites, from Thailand, including the naming of a bunch of new species. Ooh. These trilobites are from geologic deposits on Koh Tarutau Island, which is part of Thailand. The sediments themselves there are uh, ash layers within sandstone from the Cambrian into the Ordovician. So around 480, 490 or so million years ago. At this time, this area was on the edge of the continent of Gondwana, which was a landmass that included a lot of our southern landmasses today, Australia, Antarctica, Africa, India. There are lots of open questions among researchers about the relationship of different regions of the world. Yes. Were there connections between faunas? Were organisms able to travel between some regions but not between others? How were they all connected? This paper sheds some light on that by describing the trilobite sequence, the trilobite assemblage, of a particular geologic section, which is the latest Cambrian. It's around 500 million years old, a little later than that. Prior to this study, according to the paper, 18 trilobite taxa were known from this deposit, from this geologic section. Mm -hmm. Uh, Taxa means some of them were species level, some of them were genus level. 18 distinct types of trilobites. Yeah, groups. Eight of them were identified to the species level. All the way down to species. This study brings that up to 42 total trilobite taxa, 
24 of which are identified two species. Wow! Several of these identified types of trilobites haven't been seen in this region before. Ten of them are new species. Woo! Named by this study, one in a new genus. And out of these 24 species that are identified here, 19 of them are not known from outside of Thailand. Wow. So they are described A, abundance of trilobitaxa living in this space, and a pretty unique assemblage here with a bunch of new species and species that haven't been seen in other places. Yeah, potentially endemic to just found there. Yes. The new genus is Tarutauia. Uh, The species is Tarutauia tekawani. There are nine other new species that are named here. It is not necessary, I think, for me to list all of them, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) The other nine species are Tsenania srinhorne, Pseudocoldinioidea manacuti, Pagodia, question mark, so maybe in that genus, Pagodia ulenae, Asaphelis caronmiti, Gia talawawis, Kaznaya imsamuti, Andersonella undulata, Lophosokia nuchangongai. I'm slipping. It's got to go one more. And Corbinia perforata. Wow. So for those of you who like binomial names, <laughs> this paper describes 10 new species of trilobites from this area. Woo. This uh, means first that this is a much richer trilobite ecosystem than has previously been known. And this allows them to draw connections between this area of Thailand and other places. They found that this trilobite fauna has strong similarities with Australia, North China, and South China, and also notable similarities with Kazakhstan. Okay. And they make the interesting point that even though this region was part of Gondwana, the southern landmass, it seems to have more in common with parts of northern landmasses than other parts of Gondwana for the most part. So it raises some interesting questions about what were the connections ecologically between different regions? How were organisms able to move around in these coastal regions back in the Cambrian? Absolutely. Very cool. That That's a ridiculous number of a lot of things. What's what, <laughs> what you get to do when you study trilobites. Yep. Lots of fossils, <laughs> lots of taxa, lots of names. That's very cool. I'm always intrigued and and kind of excited when I see studies that do a bunch of like, we found a group and it sure does seem like we've got, you know, a half dozen or almost a dozen new names, because I'm very interested to see how are those going to shake out as more researchers come and look at how many of those are gonna be like, yep, nope, this one looks new. And then others go, this one looks like this other one, actually. And like, right. How will it filter out? Are some of them going to later turn out to be multiple species? Yes that right now are identified as one. It's a whole bunch of new data to be picked over and assessed in the future. Yeah, we now have just a whole bunch of extra data points to be added into the big map that is trilobites. Yes, there's also a couple of notes in this paper helping to not only refine the trilobites, but our understanding of the geologic sections here. Okay, yeah. They identify two biozones, so... Sections of the geologic record that are distinct based on the fossils that are found there. This is helping them to sort of refine our understanding of the ages of the geologic deposits in this area. And they also make the point that they're hopeful that in future studies they'll be able to get better dates 
on the minerals from this area and continue to refine the dating of this site. Yeah. So it's it's part of a ongoing effort to really sort of nail down what are we seeing, what's the sequence, what lived here, how are the different ecosystems similar, what can how how fine a resolution can we get on the ages of these different deposits. Very cool. Yeah, whenever you have a giant discovery and, and analysis like this, there's just so much that can be done with it. Mm-hmm. And so I I I don't follow trilobite news super closely, but I just assume that there's a whole bunch of people that are like, oh man, now we can do this. Everybody go to Thailand. Yep. <laughs> like <laughs> this is going to open a lot of new re- reanalyses and new analyses to happen on this age, this area, and these trilobites. Very cool. My first news is an interesting one. Well, but, well, thank goodness. Yes. It is <laughs> kind of unique. It is a very recent hypothesis proposing an explanation for why aging in mammals versus a lot of other animals, particularly reptiles and amphibians, seems to be so different. This research is by Joao Pedro de Magalias in Bioessays, and the article we'll be linking to is by David Neald in Science Alert. So, talking about the difference between aging... Different groups of animals and, you know, different species within those groups. But there are some trends among how different groups show aging and seem to age as they get older. We mammals have very distinct signs of aging. Graying hair, wrinkling skin, loss of eyesight. Like, we have notable phenotypes of aging. But there are other animals, lots of reptiles and amphibians, that get older and do show signs of that age, but not nearly as obviously and consistently. Like, an old crocodile does not just have definite signs of graying scales. For Like, it does... The biological systems do start to break down and slow down, but they don't just age the way we mammals do. And that's been a question of why. Why do some groups of animals seem to age much more notably and, you know, potentially quicker as in they show those signs earlier on, than others. This paper was an attempt to offer an explanation for where that could ha- that difference could have come from, at least where the seemingly quick aging we see in mammals might have originated. The proposal is that during the Mesozoic, while mammals were mostly small, mostly prey items, mostly having to stay out of the way of the dominant predators of dinosaurs, they developed a lifestyle that lended toward small size, nocturnal behavior, things we've talked about before, but also quick reproduction like a lot of rodents have. That if you're getting eaten often, typically the response is to make lots of babies to try to keep your population going. This was the case for mammals for a long chunk of our evolutionary history. It is proposed that during that time, what might have happened is that we lost whatever genetic pathways or genes lended themselves toward long life because we were having shorter, quicker lives with faster reproduction. Hmm. That we evolved away from long lives because that wasn't beneficial when you probably weren't going to survive for that time being such a small animal. And that such a long period of being in that kind of ecological role might have kind of locked us into a shorter lifespan style of genetics or Hmm. genetic options. And so that... Any that mammals today that are living longer lives, like us or whales, might be doing it 
in spite of or have found a way around those limitations. Right. This is somewhat similar to we've talked about what's called the nocturnal bottleneck hypothesis. The idea that Mesozoic mammals were commonly nocturnal animals. Yes. It was very common for them to be active at night. And there are a lot of consistent features in modern mammals that seem like the genetics that mammals are working with are somewhat limited for having been dedicated to nocturnal lifestyles at one point. For example, our vision, our color vision is more limited than a lot of reptiles, birds, even insects and stuff. And stuff like that might indicate that, well, we, our ancestors lost some of that diversity because they were specialized, and now all mammals are kind of working on a limited starting point. Yeah, you've had to become a daytime animal from a nighttime ancestry instead of having always been a daytime lineage. So this would be suggesting something very similar about longevity. Exactly. And they point to some other things about trending in mammals that also seem to sync up with the Mesozoic for losses in mammal genetics that may either directly relate to our aging or at least support that that loss could have happened. For instance, sometime in the Mesozoic, it is indicated by previous research that the ancestors to at least eutherian mammals, so us placental mammals, and our ancestor lost a number of enzymes, at least some of which coded for ultraviolet light repair. So damage from ultraviolet light on our genetics There are genes in other organisms that repair that, and we have some of those, but we've lost a number of the enzymes that are still present in other groups. And this also could connect to our nocturnal lifestyle, but Mm -hmm. that it shows a trend of loss of repair features. Right, of upkeep over time. Yes, they also noted that teeth, that reptiles regularly replace their teeth and mammals We went with specialized teeth, but we also lost the ability to continuously replace and grow our teeth. So there seems to be this trend of loss of repair mechanisms and systems in mammals that syncs up in the Mesozoic as well. And that all of it together could show that these aren't as critical if you're living short lives. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to worry about these long-term repair things. And if the short life was beneficial because you're reproducing faster... That this could all mean that our time during the Mesozoic has led us to a different system of aging nowadays. Now, this is very much an intro hypothesis. Like, this is one paper by one researcher, so this is not a definitive reason why we age the way we age. But it is a proposal to this kind of mysterious difference that aging in general is a odd feature of biology that we do not understand well. And... The fact that there's consistent differences in groups has been another level to that. This is a potential answer, a suggested answer for why we might see such a consistent difference between us mammals and reptiles and amphibians and some other groups. And they named this proposed hypothesis the longevity bottleneck hypothesis. Yeah, very much like the nocturnal bottleneck hypothesis. Exactly. It's an interesting suggestion. It's always always interesting to see a hypothesis at its... Inception. Yes, like brand, brand new. Here's an idea, putting it into words, putting it in the literature so that people can keep this in mind as we continue to investigate and explore. It's interesting. It makes me wonder, what do we see in other groups? Mm -hmm. As this is sort of hinging on the idea 
that mammals started out as relatively small, relatively minor components of their ecosystem, which is also true of a lot of other groups. Yes, that was Dinosaurs started out as relatively small, minor components of their ecosystems, and a lot of other ones did too. But that, that was my first thought was lizards. Of like, mm-hmm. most lizards, the average lizard is small and not particularly long-lived and has a bunch of eggs and like very similar dis- you know, s- uh, situations to what's being described here. So... Why would we not also suspect a similar situation for them? Yeah, I'd be interested to see further comparisons between the aging patterns of different groups. It's always very tempting. And this is something we've talked about on the podcast before. It is always very tempting to come up with an interesting sounding hypothesis and go, aha, we figured it all out. Yes. That we were being eaten by dinosaurs, and therefore that's why it's all. And we this will happen with the nocturnal hypothesis. Uh, well, Mammals couldn't be around during the day because dinosaurs would eat them, so they had to be out at night, which is almost certainly an oversimplification of what was happening. Yeah. But there could still have been a trend of nocturnality in, in mammals. I'll be interested to see what this one, I, I, I would, it wouldn't surprise me if we find that there is something interesting that happened with mammals early on in development that had effects on the way that mammals age what exactly that was and where which and where in the mammal family tree that actually got started would be really interesting to know more about absolutely and there's a lot of things that we don't yet have the information to be able to connect all of the genetic evidence to whether or not it affects aging right uh, they noted that with those enzymes you know that that those series of enzymes that a lot of us mammals are missing we also see in marsupials and monotremes that at least one of those enzyme enzymes is also missing. So that could be a separate loss from us placental mammals. Mm-hmm. But there does seem to be another a, a similar loss of UV repair genetics. But once again, how much that would be directly affecting aging or if it has any relation mm-hmm. is hard because we don't know fully what the genetic connectors to aging are. So it also might be that we have to understand aging better before we can fully right. explore this hypothesis. I'll be interested to see what how this is received or if it's picked up by researchers who know more about aging mm-hmm. and researchers who know more about Mesozoic mammals. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and see if this, you know, we, we may never hear about this hypothesis again, or maybe it'll get picked up and, and there'll be uh, more investigations into it. Yeah, it may become a component of other things of like this yeah pro- may have contributed but may not be the cause like, yeah what degree it'll be very interesting to see well cool. science well speaking of mysteries i've got a bit of news about mysterious footprints Ooh. this is research published in plus one by mienga abrams and emise bordy and we will link to an article by mindy weisberger on cnn the mysterious footprints and analyzed in this study, belong to an ichnogenus called Trisauropodiscus. So this we've talked about this before. Ichnofossils, trace fossils, footprints and burrows and stuff, get their own names uh, because you can rarely assign them to a specific uh, named species of skeleton or whatever. This particular genus of footprint is a three-toed vertebrate footprint very much like a lot of dinosaurs, right? A lot of theropods had three-toed feet, a lot of ornithopods. There's a lot of dinosaurs that have three-toed feet. Yes. There has been work in the past that has pointed to some of these footprints as being very bird-like in particular. These tracks have been found at several sites in Lesotho in Africa from the late Triassic into the early Jurassic. 
Previous work has classified seven different Ichno species within this Ichno genus, but apparently there has been lots of debate over time about are these classified accurately? What actually was making these footprints? Is it dinosaur? Is it bird? Is it something? What's going on? This study started with the discovery of some new tracks of Trisauropodiscus, this particular type of footprint, at a site called Mafutseng in Lesotho, which inspired these authors, these researchers, to re-examine a bunch of these tracks at four different sites. They visited some fossil sites, they looked at documented photos and sketches and stuff uh, and, and whatnot from previous work. They made some 3D models. It sounded like uh, uh, they might have been using photogrammetry to create 3D models so that they could analyze this diversity of prints. Cool. In total, they reviewed 163 tracks uh, to try to get us. All right, let's let's see what's going on with these footprints. Yeah, get a database going. Now, their conclusions, their results indicate uh, do, do not support, according to them, that there are seven different species within here. They identified and classified these tracks into two distinct morphotypes. Okay. Uh, it doesn't look like they gave them names. There's morphotype one and morphotype two that are distinct shapes within this Ichno genus. The first morphotype is bird-like, but has some notable differences. Could easily be something like uh, three-toed dinosaurs. The second morphotype, they noted, is a lot like birds. Okay. Very much like a bird footprint. Small size, wide track. Like the tracks are wide in comparison to their length. Yes, yes. The digits are very slender. They're splayed at this wide angle. The toes are widely angled from each other. They also note that there's they tend to show up in high density. There tends to be a lot of them. And I thought this was interesting. They noted they tend to lack a common orientation. <laughs> so it's not like they're all walking in the same direction, which they noted uh, that's not a thing you only see in bird tracks. But you do also see those things pretty often in bird tracks. Yes. Yeah. Because you're just hopping around or whatever. Yes. Uh, before you leave again. Yeah. I, I immediately pictured like a bunch of pigeons moving around the right. ground where it's very chaotic. <laughs> So uh, these look like uh, they have a lot in common with modern and fossil bird footprints. But here's the interesting part. The oldest of these tracks at this site that they were studying are up to 215 million years old. Yeah. The late Triassic. The oldest birds, the oldest basal, like early members of the bird lineage are late Jurassic. 160 million years old, a little bit younger. Things like Archaeopteryx and Shoutingia and Aurornis and Anchiornis, they mentioned in particular. So we have very bird-like footprints that are about 60 million years older than our earliest skeletal remains of the bird lineage. Bit of a conundrum. A little bit of a conundrum. <laughs> so they propose there. this could be a couple different things. As usual with footprints, we don't know what animal left these footprints. Yes. Exactly. It could be that there were just early members of the bird lineage way earlier than we thought there were. It's also possible, and the authors seem to consider this particularly more likely, that this is some kind of early dinosaur that had very bird-like feet. Yes. Not necessarily a member of the bird lineage, maybe something sort of, you know, a theropod, something that's not too distantly related to birds. They also noted in the paper that it's also possible that this could be a different group of archosaurs 
that convergently evolved very bird-like foot structures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So given this description and these comparisons and these dates of these sites, the way that the authors, I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) this isn't necessarily evidence for birds in the late Triassic, but it is the evidence for bird-like feet in the late Triassic, which is really interesting. Yeah, it it has a number of... Any implication that ends up being true is going to be very interesting. Because mm-hmm. if, if it is bird for real, that completely shakes up our understanding of the bird fossil record and evolution. Right. Which seems to be, uh, uh, you know, to be frank, very unlikely. Yes, that, that is a lot of time for us to just have had nothing. Yes. If it's bird-like something, you know, if it's a dinosaur, that... I mean, that's what birds are. Yes, so that makes sense. No reason another group couldn't have been birdish before true birds, you know, the, what ended up being the final lineage of birds came along. Mm-hmm. But if it's another archosaur, like both of those are things we've seen in other groups. Crocs weren't the first one in their overall related group to do the croc thing. Yes. So like it could be that, yeah, that birdie feet is an archosaur good thing to do it's easy for them to do yeah which will then raise the question of whoever left these tracks what were you doing yeah how birdie were you you? yeah were you living kind of like birds Mm -hmm. you probably weren't flying whatever you were but were you did you have some sort of were you moving around kind of like birds do were what 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 is the benefit of bird-like feet. Yeah. Or was that where the similarity ended? Right. It was, it was just a complete your feet. coincidence. <laughs> and then the rest of you was something completely different. And yeah, it there's a lot to dig into here. Yeah. I can think of other just, just general benefits for widely splaying slender toes. Yeah. Well, because like there's lots of birds moving, like a lot of walking birds that are not a bird way of being like, that wading birds right. and stuff like that's you came to that after the perching birds and like tree dwelling birds and stuff that's a unique thing so there's way there's reasons you could do that without having ever been very birdie beforehand yeah so now we now researchers in the late triassic have to be on the lookout for skeletons of bird-like feet yes i, I just <laughs> wanted to be something with just bird legs stuck onto it yes. <laughs> just, it's just a phytosaur yeah it's just something really weird <laughs> well this is all my next news is also about features showing up early in the group this is about early whales and some evidences of the evolution of echolocation Ooh. this is research by robert Bosnecker and Jonathan Giesler in Diversity, and the article we'll be linking to is a press release from the New York Institute of Technology in phys.org. So, toothed whales, dolphins, orcas, that overall group, episode 172, are the whales that echolocate. They have the melons on the front of their head, on the top, you know, the front of their skull. That's the special organ that they have, not like a melon. Yeah, yeah, they got just a big old fruit. (laughs) No, they have a fatty structure around the blowhole, which is their nose, that allows them to produce high-pitched sounds and then receive them through the lower jaw because they do not have external ears. The evolution of this very specialized feature has been one of the big questions for this group and when it evolved, how early did it show up, how refined was it when we see it show up did different parts show up at different times that's all been a big part of the conversation this is an analysis on a particular group of early dolphins or early dolphin cousins toothed whales known as the xenorophids these were 
early diverging, some of them showing up around 30 million years ago, dolphin-sized, you know, roughly, toothed whales, particularly the genus Xenorophus is the one that named this group and the species Xenorophus slonii, which for the past, like past century it's been known, it was mostly known from a partial skull and partial material, lacking a lot of the really important pieces to learn about how dolphiny it was being, like the brain case and so forth. So we couldn't know exactly where it was on this echolocation evolution. This study is looking at two new collections of Xenorophus that they've been able to analyze and get a ton of data about this group. It said that they are now one of the best known early stemmed tooth whales. Oh, cool. So one of the best known of the early dolphinish whales. And they've been able to tell things about their autogeny, their growth process. They were able to see that the original specimen is actually a juvenile Ooh. and that the species is bigger than we had been assuming and indicating it to be, that they are relatively large, getting up to two and a half to three meters long. All right, up to 10 feet. So a decent sized dolphin, not one of the smaller species. They were also able to get a better look at the rostrum and see things about its likely feeding behavior. It had a relatively long snout, a noted difference in the teeth. So there it was heterodonty. They had different kinds of teeth than parts of the mouth with interlocking kind of molar-like teeth in the back. Ooh, cool. More similar to a terrestrial mammal, mm -hmm. you know, a land mammal. They also noted that the brain size was notably larger than its ancestral bacillosaurid whale uh, cousins and that the teeth and dental morphology suggests it was a raptorial feeder. So biting and catching its prey yeah. that way. Thicken, thickened cementum on the teeth. So that's the one of the coatings of the teeth with thick enamel as well. So the teeth were robust. There was noted damage on the tooth, likely from biting. And the snout was taller, thicker up and down. So it was strong for bites. So we got a sense of how it was feeding. But also in the snout and around the blowhole, they noticed asymmetry. Oh. Which we mentioned back in the toothed whales episode. A lot of toothed whales today have asymmetrical heads. Their skull and parts of their face are not the same left and right. They skew, the blowhole will be off-center, and this has been attributed very heavily to producing the high-pitched sounds, but also receiving them accurately, and that this is a strong indicator of some aspect of echolocation. They show asymmetry around the blowhole, so it was likely producing high-pitched sounds, probably not as well as today's. Mm -hmm. Doesn't seem to be quite as refined. But the interesting part is that they also had extreme twisting of the snout and asymmetry of the lower jaw. There, a number of specimens showed twisting and shifting of the snout to the left by like four or five degrees, and that the jaw had a notable imbalance to the left and right, and that this is unusual even among today's toothed whales. Yeah. We do see some twisting and stuff in the snout, but that this one displays an asymmetry in the snout and jaws stronger than any whale, dolphin, or porpoise, living or extinct. Hmm. Extremely different here, and that this likely would have led to very strong directional hearing, like the ears of an owl being yeah. asymmetrical, but probably not as good at high-pitched hearing as today's whales. So they probably weren't quite as good at producing high-pitched sounds and receiving them, but 
better potentially at the direction and the location of sounds. Interesting. So it seems like they there's good evidence that they were echolocating. Yes. But potentially in a different way yes. than what we see in today's whales. Precisely. This could be a separate evolution for a way to handle echolocation, kind of. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a separate evolution of echolocation is hard right. to say. Is is this like a branch? Mm-hmm. Like you are on a lineage that went and did echolocation differently? Or is this like the early version of echolocation that then gave rise to the modern version. And that's precisely what they say here is that this means that whichever way it shakes out, this genus is going to be very crucial to the examination of the origins of echolocation in toothed whales. Yeah, well, good thing there's a whole, they're now one of the best known uh, fossil toothed whales. Absolutely. And <laughs> one the second portion of the collections that they looked at also turned out to have a new species in it. Oh. So they also have another species in here. You know it's a good it's a good study where new species is one of the later things yeah. that you mentioned. They had another a new species, Xenorophus simplicidens. Sounded like it was fairly similar to the previous species, but had a slightly shorter uh, sections of the snout, and the teeth were not as ornate and not as complicated. They had fewer cusps. Hence the name. Yep, yep. They did note that it seemed to have grouped when they did their phylogenetic study within the previous species, suggesting that they are a anagenetic lineage, that one gave rise to the other, mm. so that it potentially is just a later descendant of the species we knew. Yeah. Uh, but we now have multiple species within this genus. It's very well known and seems to be super weird. Well, that is... Oh, that's awesome. Right? That's a great study. <laughs> I love it. Very cool. Like we were saying, uh, based really with all of the studies that we talked about in today's news, this is a cool study because it seems like it's setting the stage for further research to continue to look look into these kinds of things. Yeah, I, I will love to see if we get more like mechanical studies of... Right. And is this genus now just going to be in all of the whale studies? Exactly. From now on, it's like, wow, you, you can't not include this genus now. Because it's going to be so informative. Yes. Very cool stuff and a great segue because even though toothed whales are not known for filter feeding, baleen whales are famous for it. Hey, there we did. We found, we made our way to the episode topic. I had to switch them when I was taking my notes because I realized (laughs) that the other one wouldn't segue as well. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So after this break, we will talk about what filter feeding is and some of the various ways we see organisms filter feed. To start our discussion of filter feeding, let's go over some definitions. Uh, This is a fairly straightforward behavior of filtering food out of water, typically. But there are some nuances and there are some distinctions between other behaviors that overlap or could be considered similar. Yeah, this is the kind of topic that if you start reading about it in the literature, you very quickly start coming upon terms and go, wait, is that different? Yes, is that the same? And sometimes, sometimes yes, (laughs) sometimes yes, sometimes no. The overall behavior that filter feeding typically falls under is called suspension feeding. So suspension feeding is removing food particles that are hanging in the water. Suspension is a term that's a chemistry and physics term. This is when you have a mixture inside 
a fluid, typically water, but could be other stuff, where the particles are heavy enough, are large enough that if you let it sit and calm down, gravity would pull them out of suspension. Right. They would fall down to the bottom. Yes. So this is different than like salt water, where the salt is dissolved in the water. It will not fall out of water unless there's too much salt. This is like dirt in water. Right. That's a suspension. Right. Well, think of like a snow globe. Yes, exactly. You shake it up and all the particles are there and then they all fall back down to the ground. So suspension feeding is getting those particles out of the water to feed on them. Filter feeding is technically a type of suspension feeding. There will be plenty of times, though, where you will see them kind of used interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And some things that, while technically maybe not filter feeding, still grouped with filter feeders. Because you could be feeding on those particles by grabbing them individually, if you're small enough. Oh, yeah. That still makes you a suspension feeder. Right. If you want to eat plankton, mm -hmm. but you are yourself plankton. Yes. Uh, you're grabbing those pieces out of the floating in the water. Exactly. Huh. Which leads us to our next term, plankton. Oh, hey. The food you could be pulling out of the water could be all sorts of stuff. It could be pieces of organic material, you know, like bits of other animals. And yeah. Just like random bits of or organic nutrients. Like shed skin, mm -hmm. whatever kind of stuff. Could be fecal material, could, could be rotting be material. Boop. <laughs> yep. But by far the most common food that suspension and filter feeders are pulling out of the water is plankton. Plankton is a very broad term for an extremely diverse group of organisms. Plankton is any organism that is unable to swim against the currents and tides of water. Mm -hmm. Basically, they're floating in the water, and they can sometimes swim. Like, they can move themselves around. But the tides and the currents of the ocean are so strong and they are so small that they can't swim against them. Yes. They you can move go around. where the current dictates. Exactly. You're moving with the weather. You're moving with the water. You know, if you had them in a still aquarium, they'd be able to move around perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But when you, if you shake the yes. aquarium, <laughs> yep. <laughs> if you started to pour that aquarium, they will not be able to fight the flow. Yep. There are tons of different things that could be plankton. The two most common groups that you'll see are phytoplankton, which are your autotrophic. Often they'll be called plant plankton, but typically they're not actually plants. They're algae and other microbes that photosynthesize. Yes. You have zooplankton, which are typically little animals or other small microbes that could be feeding on the phytoplankton. Mm -hmm. These also will often include babies of other organisms, larvae of fish and crustaceans that will eventually grow out of being plankton. It's just a phase. Yep. These are called meroplankton that eventually will grow, you know, develop out of a planktonic stage. Yeah, I am only temporarily plankton. Holoplankton are plankton their whole lives. And there's tons of organisms. Copepods, which are little itty-bitty crustaceans, mm -hmm. are an entire group of crustaceans that live as plankton. There's also tons of other categories that you'll come across. Mycoplankton are fungi. Bacterioplankton. Viroplankton are bacteria and viruses. Mm. You have size categories. They can range. Typically, you're going to be finding things measuring in the micrometers. That can go all the way down to femtoplankton, which are less than 0.2 micrometers, and these are typically the viruses. Quantoplankton. Yeah, basically. <laughs> or megaplankton, which can be like 20 centimeters long and bigger. So like, wow, it, that's almost not a plankton, but it's just, it's still a floaty 
Or yeah, as well, now you're like a jelly. Exactly. And you're floating around, so technically you are planktonic. Yes, you can't Plank- fight the current. Yeah, that is that the term planktonic is describes that sort of lifestyle of plankton. You can have something that is enormous, yep. in that case, you know, almost a foot long, that is technically still being a plankton. But most of them you're going to be measuring in inches or centimeters or micrometers. Yeah, it means that the water itself is just loaded with nutritious little goodies. Yeah, soup full of organisms. Yeah, or perhaps a stew. Yes. These are by far the most common things being filtered or suspension fed upon by the organisms we'll be discussing in the rest of the episode, which gives them the title planktivores. Yes. Now, once again, you can be a planktivore without being a filter feeder, because filter feeding technically means you are running the water through some sort of sieve, some sort of filter to catch the particles. But plankton, zooplankton, that eat phytoplankton are planktonivores. <laughs> yes. Like, they're not filtering. They're just eating. They're just hunting other plankton. Yeah. Well, and like if I dove into the ocean with my mouth open, yeah. I'm going to end up eating some plankton. But I'm not filtering them. Nope. I'm just swallowing them. You, you suspension fed. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so you can have planktivores that aren't filter feeders would still be suspension feeders and you have differing categories that kind of overlap. There's definitely periods of where do you draw the line between grabbing and filtering depending on how you're capturing the yeah. your prey. Once again, boxes. Yes. We're trying to put things in boxes. For instance, one common example that you'll see up as filter feeders are like coral, but they are grabbing the food with little stinging tentacles. No filter is really happening. But they are still doing the same job as what we would think of a whale doing sifting food out. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's overlap. Typically the terms will be kind of used interchangeably. I didn't see there being a lot of times where they're like, well, no, no, no. suspension filter. Technically. Yeah. They generally cover a wide group of animals that both terms work for. All filter feeders are suspension feeders Mm -hmm. and many suspension feeders are indistinguishably functioning like a filter feeder. Yeah. Even if they don't actually have a filter to use. (laughs) There's also other categories like deposit feeding. Yes, yes. Which I believe refers to sifting organic material and stuff out of sediment. Yes, exactly. So a lot of organisms, once again, in the water, will sort of rustle up the sediment and sort of kick up the dust and get the organic stuff out of the sediment. And some of them will just eat the sediment like yeah sea cucumbers will just eat the sediment and then just poop clean sand yeah they they get all the good stuff (laughs) out of it and then they just let the the pure sediment out which is also kind of a similar thing to filter you're kind of filtering but you're not filtering the water you're filtering the sediment and that would be one where that falls outside of suspension feeding because those things are not suspended they are (laughs) in the sediment So you can have some kind of filter feeding, which we'll talk about, that deals with non-suspended food. Yes. So there's a lot of circles in this Venn diagram that we're going to be talking about. And you definitely have organisms that can do multiple of these. Like there are deposit feeders that could also do a bit of filter feeding outside of that. When you look at suspension feeding, you'll often find it broken out into different categories. The two big ones that I saw frequently were passive and active suspension feeders, typically in response to how much the water they were in was moving. Mm -hmm. In 
fast-moving or active water, you'll find passive feeders. Because the water can do a lot of the work for them. Yeah, you just have to sit in one place yes. and the water is flowing over your anatomy anyway. This is like running a net across a stream to catch fish that are washed downstream into yeah, the net. you don't have to move the net. Mm -mm. You just put it in one place. We see this with tons of organisms, uh, both freshwater and marine, because we see filter feeding in both. Corals would be passive feeders, largely because they can't move. Right. <laughs> um, you see this with a lot of your uh, brittle stars and stuff. Certain insect larvae will do this in streams, aquatic yeah. insects. They'll hang on to a piece of vegetation mm -hmm. or a rock or something and then stick their little whatever you're filtering with yep. into the water. Could be mouth parts, could be limbs, and they'll usually face upstream to catch it like yep. a net. Into traffic. Active feeders have to somehow create their own flow or actively pursue the plankton. This is going to be found in less active water with less flow because now the water can't bring the food to you. The most immediately probably obvious form of this is swimming filter feeders. Yeah. You know, that you swim through the water either to your food or swim to capture your food. Right. Whales. Yep. Uh, filter feeding sharks. Yep. Things like that. That's pretty active. <laughs> like, you're not sitting there. You're burning calories. There are stationary organisms that are active filter feeder. Sponges. Sponges create their own water currents with cilia. They have little hairs that create water current to pump the water through their filtering structures and capture the food. So they aren't just waiting for the food to float into within grasp, so to speak, like a coral does. They are actually pumping the water they're, through them. They're creating a current. Yes. That flows through their body or around their body. You'll also see this once again with insects. There are mosquito larvae that will pump their mouth parts to create a flow of water into the reach of their mouth parts. There are also tube-dwelling insects that will create, you know, their tube structures and will undulate their body in the tube to create a flow of water in ah. to be able to then suspension feed. And, as is often the case, there are organisms that can do both. Many barnacles, so barnacles are those little encrusted organisms that you'll find on whales and on piers and stuff. Mm -hmm. They are crustaceans, and so they are cousins of crab and shrimp, and they stick their legs out to filter feed but they can wave them in slow-moving water and then hold them still in active water oh, to neat. just catch the food. Yeah. So they respond to the presence of moving water or oh. the how still the water That's is. That's an all-terrain filter feeder. Yes, exactly. And as we've been touching on, another bit of diversity when it comes to filter feeding is how are you catching the particles? Yeah. What is your filter? What is your filter? There are... So many different ways that organisms filter and suspension feed that it's insane. Because this is kind of the default way to eat in the ocean. Because it's the base of the food chain. You have the plankton, which is most of the photosynthesizing and most of the primary producers in the ocean. So anything feeding off of them is the start of oceanic and marine food change. Yeah, well, and it's also the plankton and the what's called marine snow. Yes. It's all the organic stuff that gradually floats down toward the bottom is also the most abundant and easiest thing to get. Yes. Good. Most of the other delicious stuff is either already at the bottom and you have to get down there to get it or is moving. 
it's a lot easier to catch plankton than it is to catch a fish. Exactly. Well, to catch a, a fish that isn't plankton. Yes, a fish exactly. that is swimming yep. around. So it's very abundant and readily available in the ocean or in whatever body of water you're in. Precisely. So we see a ton of different ways for things to do it. This can depend on what the organism is and so what parts you have to work with, but also what you're filtering. Different filters will work for different sizes and types of plankton. We already talked about things like coral, but also jellies will have their stinging nematocysts, their stinging cells on their tentacles that can grab food out of the water. Many crustaceans, the barnacles, but also types of shrimp and uh, crabs can use hair-like structures on their arms called seti. And you'll see them just sort of kicking in the water yeah. to well, grab up whatever's in there. Or kind of waving their hands around to mm. gather it up. Some invertebrates will use mucus nets where oh, they will yeah. cast out filaments of mucus, catch some food, and then draw it back into the mouth and either clean it off or just eat the mucus. Sure, sure. And then like that that one that scene from Big Daddy. Yep, yep. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> and then just cast a new net. Bivalves, so your shellfish of clams and oysters and that kind of organism, are by far one of the biggest players in the filter feeding scene. That is what most of them do and how most of them survive. And they filter with their gills. They have large gills that are bigger than they need them to be because they're serving double duty as breathing and filter feeding. And then they will use cilia to produce a current over the gill and catch it like a, catch food like a net. There are fan worms, which, as the name gives away, have a fan-like structure to catch their food. These are often burrowing worms that will come out and put out a fan of appendages to filter in the water. Fish. There's tons of filter feeding fish, both large and small. Things like sardines are filter feeders, but also whale sharks and so forth. Typically use what are called gill rakes. Mm -hmm. So the water flows in the mouth and out the gills like it usually does for them to breathe. That's how fish breathe typically. But now they have an extra layer to the gills that acts as a sieve and catches food before it leaves the gills. Quite famously, filter-feeding whales have their baleen, that fingernail hair-like structure that they have instead of teeth, mm -hmm. that they use as their filter. And the inner edge is a frayed structure where the filaments of the keratin have come apart into a more hairy-like texture. And that acts as the more finer side of the filter to catch things once they take a mouthful of water. But one of the... Forms of filtering that I don't see talked about as often is probably one of my favorites is seals. There are filter-feeding seals, crab-eating seals, leopard seals, and arctic fur seals, which I wasn't aware of, huh. have unusual teeth. Yeah. Most famously, the crab-eating seal. Yeah, Google crab-eating seals. It, there may also be a picture in the blog post. Yes, if I can find one, there will be. <laughs> they have the cusps of the teeth, so the points of the teeth, have extended and like curved and curled into these really complicated like ornate architectural yeah. structures like like the section of a chandelier like just these yeah. branching arms to the tooth and they will take mouthfuls of water and strain krill they it's almost exclusively arctic krill that they filter feed which are like itty bitty you know centimeter inch long shrimp but they're a different group and they will sieve them out with those teeth as the water runs through those cusps, but catches the food. Yeah. 
do they take a mouthful and then push the water back out mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. catch the krell? Okay, yep. that's what I thought. And they will do kind of like a, a pump where they will inhale the water like a fish kind of does by opening its mouth and pumping, you know, uh, drawing the water in to suck the prey in and then push the water back out. Yeah, like like you could push water out through the gaps in your closed, you know, in your teeth if your mouth is closed and all the stuff in it's going to get caught. Yes. There are also various birds that will filter feed. One that's notable are shoveler ducks, which are the ones that will dabble in the top of the water and swing their head side to side. They have what are called the melee, which are kind of hair-like structures in the bill and sometimes on the tongue that act to filter out little typically crustaceans from the water. So you have a ton of different ways for organisms to feed. You'll have similar structures sometimes, like the hair-like structures could be on the limbs of crustaceans, but also mouth parts of insects. Mm -hmm. So you can have similar structures on different parts of the body. You could use that mucus filter, but use the mucus on a different part of your body or in a different way or cast it in a different style. Insanely diverse. And the type of filter will often be directly correlated to what you're catching. So we can learn a lot or measure the exact size of the food just by looking at the filter and going, well, you can't be hunting anything smaller than blank because the holes in your filter are too big to catch those. So we know you're hunting stuff from this size size category up. There are also different techniques in how you employ filters at times, especially among vertebrates who are swimming and catching it in the mouth Mm. because all vertebrates are are filtering with the mouth just because that's where we eat. We don't have uh, uh, crustacean limbs and stuff to do our filtering with. You will see different techniques in how you catch your food and how you employ your filter. The most famous is called lunge feeding. Yeah. This is the baleen whale type of feeding that we think of where you take a big mouthful of water by lunging into the school of fish or yeah, krill. There's a cloud of krill and you just go straight through it with the mouth open. And then you close the mouth containing a whole bunch of water and then push the water out and catch the f- the food on your filter as you expel the water. Yes, like we were describing with the seals. Mm-hmm. Push the water back out. This is how blue whales, humpback whales, fin whales, m- most of your baleen whales are hunting this way. A lot of them have adaptations to make them better at it they have those pleated structures on their throat on the the portion of their mouth that allows it to expand and take in more water and their one lunge they have large heads and they often have streamlined bodies to make the lunge more effective so that they can do it at higher speed but that's not the only way whales can filter feed one of the other very common ways that things filter feed is called ram feeding or sometimes toe net feeding where you're swimming forward but you're not taking mouthfuls of water you're just letting the water flow over your filter as you swim Hmm. that's how whale sharks and basking sharks and a lot of the fish do it is you just open your mouth and you just through the water you just swim yes you're not sucking in a bunch of water or anything it's just not passive because you're moving through it but you're Mm -hmm. not doing anything to help the water come through this is the really the only one that i've seen called passive for your vertebrate filter feeders because you're swimming, so you are still being active, but you're not doing anything fancy with the mouth. Yes. You're just holding it open. And fish, it's particularly good because, as we said, water comes in the mouth and out the gills naturally. Mm-hmm. That's how they breathe. Now you just put a filter at the gills and you can just catch things while you swim. 
This is also how right and bowhead whales filter feed. Hmm. These are the whales with very tall heads and shorter than your blue whale. And they have these arched skulls that make a very spacious interior to the mouth with long baleen, much longer than typical whales. And they will just open the mouth, exposing the edges of the baleen. Water can flow in the front of the mouth and out the baleen, and they don't close their mouth over the food. They just swim through the water and filter as they go. They do not have throat grooves because they don't need to expand their throat to have a big gulp of water in with one lunge. Yeah. Another one to mention are manta rays, which are the largest of rays Mm -hmm. and filter once again with their gills. Uh, They are a little bit more at least fancy in their ram filtering because they do backflips. Oh, yeah, they do. They do big spiral backflips to filter feed in one spot, basically, but still be moving forward. Uh, So you're not just taking one pass. Yes. You get to take a big loop through the cloud of plankton. Yep, yep. So very different. Then you have suction feeding, where instead of swimming forward to get the water into your mouth, either by passively letting it pass over your filter or lunging onto it, You suck the water in, Mm -hmm. usually using motions of your mouth or tongue like a piston to bring the water in. That's this is very much how we can suck water up into our mouths. We're literally sucking it. We're not pouring it. We can create suction and draw it into our mouths. Yeah, this we've talked about before because this is a very common way for fish to eat. Yes. They open the mouth quickly. Mm -hmm. It creates negative space for water to then flow into. Then they will close their mouth over that water and push the water back out, filtering the food, much like lunge feeding. So this is a a version of this that you can do without having to move your body. Exactly. Open, close, push the water back out. So this is the only one you can do while stationary. Yes. The other two, you have to be moving forward for it to work. This one you can do sitting still. This is seen in, as we mentioned, the seals are known to use a form of suction feeding. Most famously, this is noted in gray whales. They are the only whale noted to use suction feeding. They will use their tongue like a piston to draw water into the mouth and then push it back out. They can use this for normal in-water filter feeding, but they also famously sift sediment. Mm. And they will go onto their side and draw sediment into the mouth and then sieve the sediment and catch little organisms inside the mud and dirt. How, it must be utterly terrifying right? to be like a little shrimp <laughs> on the floor of the ocean, just seeing this skyscraper-sized creature yeah. shoveling through the dirt. Or even more terrifying, to be the one that's below the surface and just, and then you just hear, and just are close encountered out of the sediment yep. into a mouth. Whale sharks and the mega mouth shark, which is another large filter feeding shark, can also pump feed suction feed by pumping the mouth mm-hmm. and opening it to draw water in closing it and pushing it out over the gills this is a form of this is also how flamingos filter feed by using their tongue to draw draw water in and out of the mouth very quickly as they filter feed once again they're using those lamellae those hair like structures inside the bill to do their filter feeding so not just different forms of filters but different ways to put those filters into use Baleen, the same kind of filter, is used in all three of these for very different behaviors. Yeah, I didn't know that filter feeding whales filter fed in different ways. Yep, me neither. I didn't know that. That's really cool. It's insane. I 
was not surprised when it was like suction feeding. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Mammals got tongues. And I've heard the terms lunge feeding yeah. and ram feeding before. I did not know there were ram feeding whales that just open their mouth and then swim forward. <gasps> yeah, that's awesome. That's very cool. Look at us here on the Common Descent podcast having a discussion about a form of feeding that is distinctive and iconic across most groups of invertebrates and finding the excuse to geek out about the vertebrates that do it. Absolutely. There's that bias that we're so, I was going to say proud of, <laughs> but you know, there, there's that common descent, the patented common descent vertebrate bias. Absolutely. Like, yes, <laughs> almost everyone else in the ocean is doing it in extremely crazy ways, but did you know whales could do it? Whales could do it. And all the ocean critters are like, again, with the whales. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. know whales mm-hmm. could do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fred's whole family got gobbled <laughs> up by a gray whale out of the sediment. Yeah, we were aware. Well, okay, we don't just talk about whales. The sharks can also oh, hey, sharks do can more do than it. one. Those and are that's... barely vertebrates. <laughs> <laughs> that's, there's got, we got to get some points there. Uh, uh, not even vertebrae. Well, uh, crinoids are sitting down at the bottom of the ocean going, we yeah, haven't right. even been mentioned right? yet. <laughs> crinoids, shout out to one yes. of the first examples that comes to my mind yes, for filter absolutely. feeders. Absolutely. These are the animals that are shaped like flowers yes. and they've got their their arms that wave through the water. Those fan-like structures. But to talk more about the big vertebrates, sure. That is one of the key things in a lot of vertebrate filter feeders mm-hmm. and others that we will talk about later. They're big. Yeah. A lot of them are big. And like not all of them are as big as animals can get, but even the seals, those are big seals. Yeah, well, and you mentioned flamingos. Yep. Flamingos aren't small birds. Mm-mm. Birds are often quite small. Yes. Whales are the largest mammals we've ever seen. The filter-feeding sharks are some of the largest sharks we've ever seen. Like These are often in the upper or top size category for their group of animals. Yes, blue whales. And there is... A number of reasons that this could be a beneficial trait for filter feeders. How tightly tied to filter feeding lifestyle it is, is a bit more debated as to chicken or egg. Are you a good filter feeder because you were big? Or did you get big because you were a good filter feeder? And case in point, most filter feeders are very small. Exactly. So you don't have to be big. Clams, all those things that we mentioned already. So it might be more of a vertebrate thing than a filter feeder thing. But one of the benefits to being so large is that you might just be more efficient, bigger filter. Get more water. Filter more water all at once. Catch more food in that amount of water. That It just might be you're getting it more done in the amount of time that a smaller one could be. It's I've sometimes seen it noted that some filter feeding like fish school and might be getting a similar effect of a whale. Because they are taking up the same amount of space as a whale. Even though there are many tiny individuals. Yeah. But they are they might still be benefiting from that efficiency of we're feeding on this volume of water, even though we're not all, you know, individually getting the benefits of that entire volume. Yeah, but like it, whatever I miss, I've got neighbors exactly. that can catch that stuff. So as a school, we are doing very well. Another aspect is that Plankton is not uniformly distributed across the ocean. Mm-hmm. There are hot spots and dead areas inside, depending on where nutrients is gathering and being transported across the ocean. So it is very, very common that filter feeders have to travel between these feeding grounds. Seasonal migrations are extremely common, and this could mean you're literally traveling across oceans. Mm-hmm. 
that distance is often too long for a small organism to survive. Yep. You will not survive the days in between feeding grounds to get to the next meal. But if you're big, you can store more energy. You can move long distance more efficiently. So you can get from feeding ground to feeding ground and feeding season to feeding season without starving to death in between every time. Makes sense. But this leads us into our next section of discussion, which is the pros and cons of filter feeding. Because that distribution is both a pro and a con. Plankton's everywhere in the ocean. It's just throughout the water, but not evenly. Right. You can find plankton basically everywhere, but you may only find enough to eat around this island or in the Arctic or during this time of year in this area. Another con that has been mentioned about the size is that while it may benefit you in reaching your food and feeding on it effectively, you do then need more of it. You need so much of it. Yes. Like, if you're a whale and you're feeding on things that are literally microscopic, you you need a whole lot of food. Yes. Well, it makes me think of when we were talking about thermoregulation of, like, you being more energy efficient doesn't necessarily mean you're using less energy. Right. You may get your food more efficiently, but you need more food. So those gauges are kind of going up together. Yeah. Well, and especially with things like whales. Yes. Not only are you gigantic, you're also, quote, warm-blooded. Yeah. You also are high metabolism and endothermic and homeothermic. So you need that energy to be able to use. So they need so much food. Precisely. Now, there are lots of benefits to being a filter feeder. It's a fairly low energy way to feed. Even when you're swimming after it and even when you're lunge feeding, you're not having to kill it and wrestle it. You're not having to chase it. Yeah, well, like you mentioned with a lot of the fish, feeding is the same thing as swimming. Exactly. Like As you're swimming, you are collecting food just as part of... You don't need to do a different thing. You don't need a whole new set of adaptations. It's part of that same activity. Yes. It, it creates a little extra drag, mm-hmm. so you waste a little more energy doing it because your mouth's open. You're not streamlined. Sure. <laughs> but... You're just moving forward, so you can feed literally on the go to get to your breeding ground or to get to somewhere else. Yeah, and we mentioned, uh, you mentioned earlier that a lot of invertebrate filter feeders are sessile. Yes. They stay in one place, which is a a thing that plants do. Mm -hmm. You sit in one place your whole life and just let the food come to you. Yeah, unless you're going to photosynthesize, this is really the only way to eat when you're going to lock yourself down to a rock. It also allows you to exploit this incredibly abundant food source that also is very replenishable. Yeah. (laughs) Plankton replenishes seasonally very quickly and in high amounts if the nutrition is there. That's how you can get those blooms of plankton and algae. So it is how you can take take advantage of this extremely reliable food source. That is going to come back. It may not come back in the exact same spot and the exact same amount, but basically as long as there's nutrient in the water, plankton will replenish. The downsides have mainly to do with the fact that it isn't extremely consistent, that you can find those hot spots and dead areas. Plankton will come back, but they're not always going to be where you need them to be. Mm -hmm. And if you're one of those sessile organisms, and you don't get a bloom in your area, you might be out of luck. Yeah. You can't move. You can't follow the plankton. Exactly. If you're attached to a rock. You also are now extremely exposed to everything else in the water. Mm. 
if there's other particulate, if there's other things getting mixed in with that plankton and your filter is fine enough to catch it, you're now likely going to be consuming it. Yeah. This can be lots of natural things, but the biggest one that you'll see talked about nowadays is microplastics. Yes. Because itty bitty bits of plastic make its way into the water and make its way into the ocean and get suspended just like the plankton and gets filtered out basically as well as the plankton does, as efficiently as the plankton does. So we have lots of filter feeding organisms ingesting huge amounts of plastic. There are also natural dangers in this. When you get those blooms, some of them can be algal blooms, like red tide, which is toxic. Yeah, and your filter is filtering for size and maybe for shape, but your filter is not filtering for toxic versus non-toxic. Nope. It's not like you go out and you know which berries and which mushrooms you can or can't eat. Exactly. If you're a filter feeder and you're just sitting there or you're just swimming through the cloud, you don't get to pick and choose. Yes, and even if you don't filter out the algae, the plankton you're filtering out is probably eating the algae or eating the organisms that eat the algae. Yep. So you are a big-time bioaccumulator the level of toxicity increases, I don't know if that exponentially is the right term, but, but a lot. It increases quicker the farther up the food chain you go. Yes. If you ate one alga, yes. uh, that probably wouldn't be a big deal. But if you ate an ecosystem's worth of algae. You are a blue whale. <laughs> yeah. You are the top of the bioaccumulation pyramid. So you could gain dangerous levels of toxin very quickly. So when you have a big shift in water quality or what's floating in the water or which plankton are the ones most common, you might be on the tail end of whatever that thing is going to, whatever effect that's going to have. But being at the top also means that you have a huge effect on the rest of the ecosystem. You are beholden to whatever is floating in the water, but filter feeders are major ecosystem engineers and have huge effects on just the nutrient cycle in the ocean and freshwater, but the ocean it gets a lot of the attention here just because it's such a vast ecosystem. One of the big things filter feeders do, and this is very similar to when we talked about herbivores, mm -hmm. they are great accumulators of nutrients and bringing it from the producers, those phytoplankton that are photo doing the most of most of the photosynthesis in aquatic environments and most of it on the planet. Yep. They are the biggest photosynthesizers on our globe. Filter feeders and planktivores, you know, so other zooplankton, are the ones that take that solar energy gathered by these phytoplankton and make it available to the rest of the food chain. Yeah, this was, like you said, episode 173, we talked about this with herbivores do this on land. The ocean and most aquatic habitats, especially marine habitats, tend not to have vegetation like we think about on land. Yes. The equivalent is your photosynthesizing plankton and microbes and the various other organisms that are mixed in there with them. Because filter feeders are doing that a very similar job. Yes. And the reason they're the most common in that situation is they can float at the top of the ocean where there's enough sunlight. Plants don't have a place to take root up at the top of the surface of the open ocean. Right. So that's why you only get those kinds of planty environments coastally where it's shallow enough for you to get seagrass and then still have sunlight yep. and take root. Out in the open ocean, you need to float if you want sun. And phytoplankton, that's what they do. So you have that bioaccumulation of we're taking these small organisms, this very 
evenly dispersed nutrition and concentrating it into you know, larger planktivores and smaller filter feeders, which then can be eaten by larger predators. Mm-hmm. So removing that energy up the food chain, they can also be doing an important job in decomposing if they're eating, you know, waste material or rotten material. Yeah. Something's got to clean the water. Exactly. This becomes very important in nutrient transport that now that I, a giant whale, have eaten all these itty bitty animals, when I go to the bathroom, <laughs> that fecal material is going to sink down into the depths and become more concentrated, very much like herbivores moving nutrition, eating plants here, pooping over there, and moving that nutrient around the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. You will have it moving more efficiently than just that marine snow, which sinks so incredibly slowly that it could take, I I don't know what the actual time limit is, but I'd assume years to get from the top of the ocean to the very bottom. It's a long time. This speeds that up. It moves it around more efficiently. You also have the fact that a lot of filter feeders could be moving great distances, Mm -hmm. literally across the globe or in between environments. Salmon are filter feeders as adults in the ocean and then spawn up rivers and bring all that plankton energy into a forest where bears can eat them. That's ocean energy being eaten by a bear. Aquatic insects do the same thing when they reach adulthood and fly out of their aquatic environment where they were filter feeding and then go who knows where because they can fly. <laughs> they also remove material from the water. As you were saying, you got to clean it up. This could also be cleaning up suspended sediment with things like bivalves. They are very important for water quality in many ways of keeping the nutrient levels reasonable because that will potentially keep algal blooms in check. If you have enough filter feeders eating some of the excess nutrient, but also, if they're controlling the water quality, you could have clear enough water to have photosynthesis to the right degree. So they are kind of maintaining the quality of water, especially for those invertebrate filter feeders. Yeah, I like that you mentioned, because I was thinking it, they are doing a little bit, uh, in, in comparing to terrestrial ecosystems, mm-hmm. a little bit the job of herbivores and a little bit the job of decomposers. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. They can often kind of... Or I get detritivores. Detritivores, is, is exactly. a more yes. apt term here. So they can kind of bridge multiple groups of a filter feeder could be feeding on live organisms, dead material, and waste material. Mm-hmm. All at the same time, depending on which filter feeder you're looking at. Like some of them are not picky as long as it's organic and I can so digest something right, good right out size. of it. Yeah. Yep. You also have many of them that will disturb environments with bioturbation, stirring up sediment. Gray whales do this. They leave distinctive furrows and sediment trails, resuspending sediment mm-hmm. and nutrients into the water. Flamingos do the same thing. They will pump their feet to stir up the water and filter the sediment. You have certain burrowing filter feeders that will create a current and aerate and disturb the sediment around them. So you can have them mixing up things literally and bringing nutrients back up into the water from the sediment. And then by far the largest impact that a filter feeder can have are ones that create ecosystems like coral reefs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is, again, uh, we've talked about this with plants before. Plants, just in doing what plants do, mm-hmm. end up creating biomes. Yes. We've talked about this with Ali. Episode 115 was biomes. Forests and grasslands and shrublands and whatever. That is just a... We're just describing what the plants are doing. Yeah, that's just them being plants. Coral reefs are like that. You have a place where a lot of coral can live. 
they end up creating a habitat. And you can find smaller versions of this, sometimes called fouling communities, with things like bivalves and uh, uh, barnacles and so forth that also encrust on sponges mm-hmm. that settle down onto rocks can create these ecosystems where now new life can make a home there that wouldn't have been able to survive on this rocky outcrop without some sponges to hide in or corals to live among. So filter feeders not only are moving nutrients around and redistributing the energy in the ocean, they also can create ecosystems. Yeah. So big deal players in aquatic environments. I think it's very easy, because I feel like I've fallen into this trap. It's very easy to think of filter feeding as kind of a niche. Mm Mm-hmm additional version of feeding because we are so keyed into thinking about how things work on terrestrial environments exactly and we think about herbivores and carnivores and scavengers and blah 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 and filter feeding is such a rare thing in our ecosystems and when it isn't rare it's usually being done by tiny organisms in the river or whatever precisely but on a global scale this is a massively important extremely this is a ubiquitous form of feeding and it the organisms that do it are foundational players in their ecosystems yeah if you didn't have planktivores things feeding on these small floating organisms you wouldn't have basically any of the other roles in the ocean because like herbivores without them making that nutrients available you would have a fairly boring ocean because a shark you know a great white shark can't take advantage (laughs) of those small organisms. They don't have the tools. They would just starve without these foundational organisms. They need several degrees of intermediate. Yes. (laughs) To bring the nutrient to a form that they are able to eat. Precisely. They they are high maintenance uh, compared to these these guys. (laughs) So that is a bit of the diversity of filter feeding and how it's done and what effects it has. If we didn't mention your favorite filter feeder, uh, please let us know. There are so many different kinds of filter feeders and similar filter feeders in different groups. That like you could talk about one kind of filter feeding and be talking about five different majorly distinct groups of organisms. But still, the mechanism is very similar. If we didn't get to it, please let us know. We can always return to these cool organisms. Please uh, get in the episode description, go to the topic request form, submit your request now for an episode about whatever your favorite filter feeder is. But at this point, we will take a brief break and musical interlude and move on to talking about filter feeding in the past and how we've been able to distinguish when we think we found fossils of something that filters. Filter feeding in the fossil record is kind of an interesting combo when it comes to recognizing it. Because on one hand, it's behavioral, which can often be very hard to determine in fossils because they're no longer behaving. We can't watch them filter feed. But on the other, it's structural. You have to be able to filter, and we know it extremely well today. Like, we know it from many different organisms. There's lots of different examples. So we have references for different ways to filter feed and what we might look for to recognize that in a fossil organism. So there are some filter feeding fossils that are pretty dead on. Yep, that's what we're dealing with. Others that are a bit more debated. There are plenty of fossils of filter feeding groups. Those are 
extremely common. Bivalves, you know, clams and oysters and all of their cousins, corals, mm -hmm. crinoids, as we mentioned earlier. These are groups that, as a rule, generally filter feed. Right. There are exceptions. There are ones that do weird stuff, but generally they are filter feeders. So even though we don't have the filter structure, like the polyps of the coral are no longer there, it is pretty well assumed that's what they were doing unless they were a bizarre member of their group. So filter feeding fossils are some of the most common fossils in the fossil record. Yeah. Bivalves, <laughs> brachiopods, crinoids, things like corals, yeah. all sorts of stuff. So we find tons of them. We usually aren't mentioning that about them because it's a given, you know. Right. Well, it's 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 kind of, it's one of the least notable things about it. Yeah, of yeah. course it's filter feeding. That's what a clam does. Exactly. So <laughs> you usually don't hear it brought up. So when you look up fossil filter feeders, those won't come up in the list of results. Right. Because that's not what we're talking about those for. We're talking about it's a new species or it's it gives us some information about the environment or the temperature of the water. The ones that filter feeding makes it into the title are when it's an unexpected group yes. or a weird group that's filter feeding. This is one of the reasons why like Today, whales get so much attention because mammals, as a rule, don't filter feed. Yeah, even the aquatic ones. Yeah, that's not what they typically do. They're usually predators hunting down individual prey items. It is unusual to have a filter feeding mammal. Yeah. And the mammals that do it are often weird. Yes. They have very unusual structures like baleen, like those seal teeth. It's what you were saying in the first section that it often, like to us, can feel like filter feeding is a specialized lifestyle. And for some groups, it is. Mm -hmm. For others, it's the default. So usually when it comes up in fossil discussion, it's when we find a member who seems to be a unique filter feeder among their group. And we do have a number of fossil organisms where we have good evidence, or at least highly suspect, that they could have been filter feeding. And unsurprisingly, these go back all the way to the Cambrian. Like they, It seems like diverse animals have been doing this since there's been marine life. Yeah. And now that we have discussed filter feeding in its sort of broad overview, that is not at all surprising. Yeah, because the earliest marine organisms would have been planktonic yes. <laughs> floating around. So as soon as some settled down and went, well, I can catch a bunch of these at once, it would have started showing up. Yep. I found one example of a acorn worm-like relative. Uh, these are worms that are around today, but this was a extinct group. This one was named Osea disjuncta and was a tube-living worm. So it created a tube you know, that it built around itself. And it had the anatomy that you would expect from a tube liver. It had grasping structures on its back end to hold on to the tube. They noted an extensive pharynx, which is kind of the inside of the worm mouth. Sure. Like, that's, that's kind of what that's doing. It's the, the muscular the, section. It's the hole where the food goes. Yep, yep. But the tube they built was spirally arranged with openings on the side of the tube. And so it has this kind of... It, if you think of those finger traps where it's the woven together, yeah, that's the pictures I found kind of have that look if you were to stretch that out and make the openings bigger. Hmm. And has been interpreted as a filtering structure to allow water to come through and the worm to filter food out of uh, uh, that, that flow. Interesting. So we have some unique potentially filter feeders. Right, not just the typical exactly. bivalves and crinoids and stuff. This seems to be... we. I didn't see any mention of a modern equivalent of this kind of tube filtering. We also have some of these early groups that seem to have unique filter feeding members or lineages. 
one of the most famous ones that there was recent news on was Anomalocarids, which are large arthropod predators from the Cambrian to the early Devonian. This includes Anomalocaris. They have those fins down the side of the body and those two grasping structures at the front of the face. There have been a couple of different groups noted where on the grasping structures, they have these long extensions that come off the bottom typically. Some of them had extremely fine spines coming off those extensions. Yeah, like uh, so much that they're also like bristles. Yes, exactly. Very bristly that create a battery, so to speak, a net that at least seems like it would be effective for filter feeding. Yeah. One of these groups is called Temesio Corididae, but the other was a genus called called Agirocassus from the Ordovician, so not quite 500 million years ago. This one has gotten a lot of attention because it has very well-preserved head structure. It is 3D preserved, so we got a really good look at its feeding apparatus. And on its two appendages, there are five indites, so it's those extensions, each which had around 80 of these seti-like hairs creating this filter. So very strong evidence that it was feeding in a unique way, likely some sort of filter feeding, since that that's... What that structure, it looks very much like other filter feeding structures from other arthropods. But also, this one was two meters long, which puts it among some of the largest arthropods in Earth's history and puts it as another example of a giant member of a group that's filter feeding. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, once again, the tie of body size to filter feeding has many ways that that could be going. Mm-hmm. This could have been a large member that then became a very effective filter feeder, or that could be a sign of its success as a filter feeder, right. letting it achieve large sizes. Either way, it does likely give some inference to planktonic populations and and situations in the oceans at the time. Yeah, if you could be a filter it, feeder that big, yes. there was a lot to eat. So we may have some insights into the diversity or population sizes of plankton around that time, which does sync up potentially with the Great Ordovician biodiversification event mm-hmm. when we see a lot of diversity in groups increase. Uh, also, just as a side fun fact, this specimen also helped nail down that those flaps, those fins along the side, do seem to be similar structures to arthropod limbs and oh, was a key... A member in the study of whether those structures are unique to anomalocarids or similar to other arthropod limbs. Seems like they are similar. Yeah, so just another fun aspect that this filter feeder helped us with. There is at least one plesiosaur, so the long-necked, thinned marine reptiles that we've talked about before. Oh, episode 72. They were big-time ocean predators during the Mesozoic. There's at least one species that has been noted as potentially having the anatomy of a filter feeder. This is Mortineria seymourensis from the late Cretaceous of Antarctica and has a decently complete skull. Uh, 60% of the cranium was preserved, which makes it one of the best preserved for its group. So just another neat thing about this one. But its mouth and teeth are unusual for plesiosaurs. And some of its close relatives also show some of these derived characteristics. One of them being that its jaw was a long hoop-like structure. Would have allowed for a large gape to it, for it to open its mouth widely to a large mouth cavity. Mm-hmm. 
the palate, so the roof of the mouth, was keeled. So it went upward, like if you think a pitched roof on the inside of a house. Yeah. To make the space inside the mouth also much larger. Yeah, which is a thing that we see in filter feeding whales exactly. and other filter feeders. So both of these together allow for a large opening of the mouth and then a large cavity inside. Like whales, this lets you take in a larger amount of water into one gulp. Mm-hmm. And then, if you can filter it out, catch that food. And indeed, the teeth of this plesiosaur are were described as needle-like and formed a kind of comb-like structure. They interlocked with each other outside the mouth, and the tips did not touch. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like it would be effective for grabbing because the tips are not occluding in a way that would give you a good grip on something. Right. Uh, contrary to the very many movie monsters that like to have teeth that are sticking out in all directions exactly, yeah. and crossing each other, that's not actually very good for eating. Yes. These come out and they come together like a zipper almost and could have been used as a sort of sieve to filter food. Interesting. It's been suggested that what the behavior that would be most likely effective with this anatomy would be more like a gray whale sieving out sediment hmm. than trying to filter free swimming uh, a prey. So we could see them, and I think I've seen an animation before of them scooping up sediment and then letting it fall out between the teeth to capture whatever might have been hiding in there. This is one where this is already an unusual group. So one of the other things we have to remember when we look at behaviors and particular ways of life in the fossil record is a fil- there could very well be filter-feeding plesiosaurs but they're already doing something we don't have an example of today. Yeah, they're already unusual animals. So a filter-feeding individual might also be unique and a version we haven't seen before. Yeah, you may be filter-feeding in a way we don't have a modern equivalent to. So sometimes it's hard to nail down. We have to look for the things that we have reference for. You have a mouth with features similar to some whales. You have teeth that should do that job well. Mm -hmm. It's Harder than to confirm that's indeed what you were doing, especially since we also don't know how you swam. Right. We don't know (laughs) what you were doing with other parts of your body and other parts of your behavior. So you'll get into some tricky areas. One group, though, that definitely seems to have been filter feeders and is a big deal in fossil filter feeding because they seem to have been the ones kind of doing the whale thing before whales came around are pachycormid fish. This is an extinct group of bony fish. They were around in the Jurassic to Cretaceous for about 100 million years and were fairly globally dispersed. Now, most of their members are just normal ocean swimming fish. You know, they just, they said convergent with tunas and billfishes. So Mm -hmm. just big open water fish. Sure. Uh, But incidentally, two groups that uh, today exhibit some form of endothermy. Yes. Uh, Listen to the last episode. Yep, yep. (laughs) The giant pachycormids were some of the largest bony fish on Earth and throughout our history and all seem to be filter feeders of some kind. Mm. These got up to sizes. Some were like five meters or so. The largest, Leedsichthys, is famous for getting up to roughly nine meters long. Yeah, yeah. when you said big, I was started, mm-hmm. I was. I said, oh, is this the group that Leedsichthys is in? Indeed, they have... A lot of features you'd expect to see in filter feeders. Large, elongated, and expanded lower and upper jaws for that larger mouth for for water to enter in through. No teeth. 
because they're not catching food with their mouth, uh, by biting at least. And then there are preserved gill rakes mm-hmm. across their gill arches. So gill rakers you'll see in a bunch of fish that are these sort of struts that go mm-hmm. perpendicular to the gills, the gill arches themselves. Yeah. Aptly named rakes because they have projections for catching things. Yep. There are numerous species of these giant uh, 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 fish that show these filter feeding behaviors or, or uh, anatomy and were found around the world during this time. So they seem to have kind of been the whales of the Mesozoic. Yeah. Dedicated to filter feeding, getting to large sizes, swimming around the world. They died out at the end of the Cretaceous and it has been pointed that a lot of the other big filter feeders we see, we don't see until after they go extinct and could likely be that they left that niche open for the large filter feeding sharks uh, and whales later on to show up. Also during the Mesozoic, there were filter feeding pterosaurs. Yeah, there were. The flying reptiles of the Mesozoic. There was an entire group that seems to be mostly filter feeding. The Tenochasmatidae are a group of pterosaurs from the Jurassic to early Cretaceous, and many have distinct teeth and bills that seem extremely well adapted for filter feeding, but not all in the same way. There are different forms of filter feeding structures in this group. So there seems to have been either multiple origins, though some of the earliest members already seem to have good filtering teeth, and that they diversified into various filtering forms. Mm -hmm. By far the most famous member is the genus Pterodostro. There have been multiple specimens of this group found. It was also one of the earliest described of these filter feeders. It has a very long skull, like up to 30 centimeters almost, with a curving jaw that curves upward. The jaw's 85% of the skull length. So it's just all bill. (laughs) And the lower jaw has these upward-facing, long, thin teeth that form this strainer like a pasta scoop yep uh with those upward facing teeth those you know those projections just if it was made out of toothpicks and was almost a foot long those line the bottom jaw and then the upper jaw has some small globular teeth so not very you know complicated just blunt teeth this immediately led to the interpretation that that's a strainer and they are filtering out food with that bottom jaw and then potentially crushing it up with those upper teeth mm-hmm. to then swallow. Yeah, Pterodostro has been compared a lot to flamingos. Yes. They have a very similar face shape, a very similar arrangement. Uh, in flamingos, it's the lamellae. Mm-hmm. In the pterosaurs, it's the teeth. And I have seen, I saw some mention of the skull and neck structure potentially suggesting muscles that could have been helping with pumping action mm-hmm. or, or some sort of pump filtration yeah there was if i remember right there was at least one study that looked at the spacing of the teeth Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and noted that some of them would have filtered the same size things as pterosaurs and i i I, I may be making this up that there may have been a study that found coprolites yes yes indeed that okay great that had little tiny stuff in them that matched the filter size that you would expect from the teeth yes indeed there were uh three coprolites collected in poland near, in the same sediment area as pterosaur footprints, trackway. Right. And 
based on the fact that a synchrotron scans of the coprolites found small inclusions of foraminifera, so plankton, and shells from things like small bivalves and crustaceans and bristles from polychaete worms Mm -hmm. matches a filter feeding diet. The trackways are pterosaur. The anatomy of the coprolite matches pterosaur. Giving that, they said pterodostro, but it could be uh, uh, some close cousin filter feeding pterosaur. Right. Likely left them. And yeah, it matches the diet kind of things of a flamingo. So very cool. This was a, a long-faced, fine-toothed, flying fossil filter feeding. <laughs> yes, indeed it was. And it wasn't the only one. Another genus within this group, Lanognathus, had a long bill that was spatulate at the end yeah that widened out at the front but instead of having the round spatula of our today spoon bills it flattened out at the very front yeah it had a flat edge at the front along either side of both the upper and lower jaw were lots of itty bitty thin teeth at least 480 teeth in total (laughs) more than 100 (laughs) teeth along each edge but the flat front was toothless and they think that it was likely used to enter water in through the front without any teeth there and then strain it out the sides. Push it out the sides. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. So a different structure where you now have filter feeding teeth top and bottom and a different shape of bill. There is some upward curve to it and there was some concaveness to the structure. So it was a bit spooned. Right. So to speak. So it did have some similarities, but it was a different kind of filter feeding bill. Yeah. Not surprising given what we were talking about with modern animals that we yep. have all these different forms of filter feeding. I didn't find a lot of information on every, you know, all the other members, but there's pictures on like the Wikipedia for this group that show ones that had very long teeth that projected outside the mouth, mm-hmm. small teeth, more normal shaped bills, others that had expanded fronts, like many different forms of filter feeding pterosaurs. Yeah. For comparison, flamingos, if you haven't seen how they feed, it's easy to imagine them sort of diving through the water like a whale does. Flamingos stand in one place and dip their heads upside down into the water and filter that way. The pterosaurs were very likely doing something similar. They have an anatomy that shows that they'd either be good for wading and walking around, Mm -hmm. so likely doing this while standing, potentially even while swimming because they have broad splayed feet. So they might have been good at actually moving through the water, but that they were likely landing and then filter feeding right staying still and then like most filter feeders yes indeed there are some other fossil filter feeders that have been suggested not all have stuck or that have some have been debated uh there was one group of cretaceous sharks that have been pointed out as maybe filter feeders one was eorhynchodon casei which was thought to be the oldest whale shark identified over uh, off of the very very tiny teeth that whale sharks do have whale sharks have extremely small like smaller than your fingernail little hooked teeth that aren't really being used in their feeding but they still have them so they might be helpful for other purposes Hmm. but they do filter feeding sharks do have some remnants of their teeth another one identified off of these similar small teeth was megachasma Comanchensis, which was considered to be a fossil megamouth. That's the same genus as the megamouth today. So we had a couple that were an old whale shark and an old megamouth. Later, these were interpreted to be abraded teeth mm. and not so teeth actually that had broken down. A bit. Yeah, that had been worn down to the small size that they were and were not indicative of filter feeders. 
Then a more recent study looked at them again and said, no, no, we think these taxa are valid. They do seem to be filter feeders, and we think they are in the same group that we are going to name pseudo-megachasma. So that one's gone back and forth a couple of times. And if it is accurate that they are filter feeders, would also be evidence of a mesozoic large filter feeding fish alongside the pachycormid fish. Yeah, so it wasn't just the one group. Yes. Like today, it isn't just one big group. So that could indicate that there wasn't as much of that just changing of the guard as has been interpreted before, Mm -hmm. or maybe there still was if these went extinct at the same time, but that it wasn't just one guard being changed. So there's definitely still some debate when we find filter feeding evidence. It's not always surefire. This would also be the earliest filter feeding shark and elasmobranchial cartilaginous fish that we know of thus far. Mm -hmm. So this would be one of the first ones that we know to do it. Another very famous example, Atopodentatus unicus, which is a species of Sauropterygian, which were marine reptiles. This one was from the Triassic. This group includes other swimming, kind of long-necked lizard-looking creatures. Yeah, this is the group that eventually gives rise to plesiosaurs proper. They had a bunch of more ancient cousins. And so this is within that group. When it was first discovered, it had a very unique snout shape and was interpreted that the front of the snout, the rostrum, downturned into two projections on the upper jaw with thin teeth coming down, kind of forming a filter. Right. Well, you said the genus name. I was like, I've heard of this genus. Why have I heard this genus? Yes, indeed. That's right. And it was thought that the the mouth downturned kind of like a flamingo's bill. Mm -hmm. And it thought that maybe they stirred up the sediment and then sieved it through the needle teeth in a similar way. A better specimen with a better preserved rostrum came up and showed that those projections that turned down actually stood out sideways and it was a hammerhead mouth. That instead of having two projections coming down from the top, the front and bottom, the top and bottom jaw at the front had two projections going out sideways, left and right, Uh into a hammerhead type mouth. And that the teeth are arranged slightly differently. There are needle teeth along the sides of the mouth going down that projection, but the front, that flat front of the hammer, had more peg-like and robust teeth. This led to a different interpretation of its diet, that it was likely an algae eater with its you know, vacuum cleaner flat mouth scraping algae with those peg teeth and then potentially straining it to catch it with those thin teeth. Mm-hmm. So it may have, you could maybe still call that filter feeding. Yeah, or but something like deposit feeding, yeah. something a little different. But it definitely is no longer the flamingo-like filter feeder that we had initially interpreted it as yeah. because we got a better skull for a weird face. Like, yes. still very like, weird. We looked at it and went, that's weird. And then we got a better skull and we went, oh, it, all right, it was weird. Yeah, but, but it was folded in half. It was weird differently. <laughs> we were wrong about the weirdness. So sometimes it'll be, you'll get weird anatomy that is legitimately weird, but until we get a good enough specimen, we might not be able to tell what it was doing. Yeah. You'll still find art when you if you Google this animal. That has the, the, the face filter. Yeah, That's... the folded face. Yeah. It's so bizarre looking. I also found note of a genus of flightless swans from the Miocene of Japan called a Nakasigna. These were large swans, so they had big bodies, small wings, didn't seem to be flighted. Uh, I also saw one thing, note them as marine. 
So I, hmm. I, I I didn't find any details on what kind of habitat they were found in, but potentially moving around in more open water, or at least coastal, and had notably large heads. They were called heavy-headed, uh, or head-heavy. <laughs> and the preservation of the head and beak is not fully complete. The upper beak was not fully preserved, at least in the, the specimen I saw described. But based on the anatomy that was there, it was likely a long and deep beak, so not thin. Sure. Lots of space. Yep, yep. Similar to shoveler ducks, they, they noted, and had evidence of unique musculature in the jaw based on the shape of the head and the jaw bones that suggests when it moved its jaws that they would have been kind of a seesaw motion with the lower jaw, when it moved back, the upper jaw would have retracted so that they would have been kind of moving in this seesaw forward and backward movement. That suggested to the researchers that interpreted it that it could have been used for a pumping action for filter feeding similar to shoveler ducks or potentially flamingos with moving the beak in a way to pump water in and out. There is not lamellae preserved, so those hair-like structures in the beak, we don't have those, Mm -hmm. but it has the face of a filter feeder. We just don't have the filter. So that's one of those where you, you seem like you could have been doing that, you're a flightless bird, so it it you'd be able to be on the ground to do it very well. But, you know, we don't actually have the structure you would have been using to do it with. And then the last weird face, I want because that's when you're filter feeding vertebrates, that's what you're talking about, looking, is weird faces. At weird faces. Morasuchus is a group of Caymanae crocodilians, so cousins of Caymans. This is from the Miocene of South America. This was made famous along a number of other discoveries that has a very long, flat, wide snout with very thin lower jaw and very small peg-like, you know, a, a sharp but peg-like teeth. It was called Pancake Croc. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got the name there. Another cousin, Stomatosuchus, which has very similar skull shape, is the one that that name got coined for. That was discovered in Africa alongside a number of other uh, famous crocs. Caprosuchus is... One of the ones that was discovered then. So if you're recognizing this, it was that documentary that made these famous. These crocs, which have very similar jaws, even though they're in separate groups, and there are others, Leganosuchus and Egyptosuchus, are also suggested to have similar jaws. And it has been debated extensively what they were doing with these mouths. Because they are unlike other croc mouths. The lower jaw is so thin compared to other crocs the extension to how flat and wide the mouth is is very unusual with very small teeth. It's been suggested they might be gulp feeding, kind of like a pelican, and have a guler sack, that pouch on the lower jaw, to scoop up a bunch of water and then swallow prey, potentially straining it with those small teeth. Mm -hmm. Others have suggested maybe they just sat with the mouth open in the water and waited for something to swim in, and the mouth was wide and long enough that it gave them enough. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't immediately look like a mouth. Yeah, and that there was enough mouth that, well, statistically, someone's going to swim through it because yep. you're taking up so Swim-in. much space. You look up. Yes. It is a mouth. Precisely. <laughs> so filter feeding has been suggested for them because the jaw does not seem effective for biting. Yeah. But it's not got a lot of support and direct evidence that that is what they were doing. The gulp feeding has gotten a lot more attention and support. But you will see them come up when you look for fossil filter feeders. 
the stomatosuchids and the the morosuchids will come up because they have just such an unusual face and it could make sense that they were filtering kind of like the seals yeah. using their teeth. Well, and those, those these few examples are really good in, uh, examples of the, how difficult it can be to identify filter feeders. Precisely. Because there are so many ways to filter feed and so much of it has to do with what your muscles are doing and what the soft tissue is doing that you can very easily get a familiar filter feeder mm-hmm. something you know you mentioned that those cretaceous maybe uh whale sharks or megamouth sharks are would be the oldest known shark filter feeders yes but of course sharks are mostly soft stuff yeah so there could very well be paleozoic sharks that are doing the normal familiar filter feeding thing we just haven't found those parts yet absolutely and then there are also filter feeders that could be doing filter feeding in a way that is utterly bizarre and different yeah that we don't recognize what does a filter feeding crocodile look like yeah we don't know because that doesn't exist today so it can make it very tricky to sort of tease and especially since filter feeding can be there can be overlap yes between filter feeding and other feeding styles it can end up there, the adaptations can be very similar between filter feeding and other styles sometimes. Yeah, the overlap is one of the biggest things that jumps out to me because I knew crab-eating seals were filter feeders. Right. I did not know leopard seals could also hunt krill that same way. Yeah. Because they are famous for tearing apart penguins. Yes. <laughs> like a leopard. Yes. <laughs> like, they are macro predators. Most of, most of the time you see them in documentaries. But when they filter feed, they can filter feed krill with their teeth in a very similar way because they also have multi-cusp teeth. Mm-hmm. Not as intense as the crab eaters, but enough to filter with. So we could absolutely have fossil predators that we look at and go, absolutely, that was tearing into flesh. Right. And go, yes, like some of the time. Would a filter feeding mosasaur mm-hmm. look like a seal? Yes, exactly. Would, would you look a lot like a seal mouth? And so... If you're only doing it some of the time, you may have deadly filters. Yes. <laughs> you know? these, are, these things are multi-purpose. Yeah. This is like having a strainer that's edged <laughs> and has been forged. So it can often be tricky to track down that behavior as you get into those more unique structures and less clear anatomies. This also comes up when we're trying to study the evolution of filter feeding trying to figure out when does it show up or what are the trends in it showing up because it's not 100% consistent across each group. We've mentioned the gigantism question as to chicken or egg, are filter feeders big because they're filter feeders or are they filter feeders because they're big? Mm -hmm. Does one follow the other? Do they follow each other? I found one study looking into gigantism in sharks and rays and found out that there seems to be two situations in which sharks get big when they are ectothermic and filter feeders so not high metabolism and eating a energy efficient food in an energy efficient way right i would assume basking sharks megamouth sharks things like that yes or they are mesothermic so higher metabolism higher body temperature and macro predators like great great white sharks great 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 white sharks and megalodon yep those seem to be the ways that sharks get big Hmm. so they're is definitely a connection to it, but it's not the only way they get big. Yeah. But you... Well, same, similar with whales. Yes. There are giant whales. That, most of our most giant whales are filter feeders, but there are giant whales that are not filter feeders. Precisely. So that gigantism question has been looked at time and time again as to how important a role does this really play into 
the evolution of filter feeding. Mm -hmm. It comes up with whales quite often. Another thing that comes up with the question of filter feeding whales is that they have a very unique structure. They have baleen Mm -hmm. and have lost their teeth. So the ancestral whales had normal mammal teeth. At some point, they lost their teeth and switched over to the whale bone, the hair teeth of baleen. And how that transition happened has been studied and talked about immensely. Alongside, how did you gain the other features of being a giant filter-feeding whale? There have been several suggestions as to how this transition could have happened from the raptorial biting ancestors to the filter-feeding baleen descendants. It could have been that they started with tooth-based filter-feeding, like crab-eating seals, and then added in baleen and shifted over, so that they were already filter-feeding, but with a different structure. There have been some fossil whales, like Coronodon, which has teeth that seem like they could have been decent filters, and seem fairly unworn, like they weren't being used to bite something and wear them down. It could be that there was some transitional anatomy of baleen and teeth, where they were filtering with the baleen but still had teeth doing teeth jobs, or that they could have gone through a phase of suction feeding to suck in prey and, you know, grab it with teeth and then start filtering it after they suction in the water. Yeah, this is an interesting question that comes up with vertebrates, like we were saying, that with so many filter feeding invertebrates, it's, well, yeah, that's how you vote. That's how that whole group is. Absolutely. With vertebrates like this, we come to the question of how did you go from not doing this to doing this? Exactly. So we have to look for evidence of the things that would indicate you were potentially filter feeding or had the structures. One of the things that look for are called sulci on the palate, the roof of the mouth. These are structures that in today's filter feeding whales are indications of baleen and are important for providing blood flow to the baleen, which is constantly growing like hair and fingernails. Finding these structures has often been considered a indicator of the presence of baleen in fossil whales, but the origins of these structures and how it started being used for baleen has also been debated and suggested in multiple uh, multiple scenarios suggested. It could be that they came up with baleen, you know, that this was a structure that evolved alongside baleen and could support the idea that baleen and teeth happen simultaneously, that this is a baleen thing. It could be that they were there for a previous job, you know, that you needed that structure before baleen could come along and could be that they were there for feeding the gums and feeding other parts of the mouth. This has often been connected with the suction feeding, that it might be for a particular usage and feeding style, or that baleen came up first and they came up later. So how connected they are is also important to know when we see it. Is this the evidence of baleen, the setup for baleen, or advanced baleen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it is it is hard to tell because we don't have the baleen itself. It's not bony. The whale that I saw discussed heavily in interpreting and, and has led a lot of uh, evidence toward what the kind of current thoughts are on the, the evolution of filter feeding whales is Lanocetus denticornatus. This is, at the time of that paper, considered the second oldest f- mysocete whale, which are the filter feeders today, at 34 million years old, and has a mix of features that lean it toward filter feeders, like a broad snout, 
So it doesn't have a thin snout like a dolphin, but a broader one, more like suction and filter feeding whales. But it does have sharp teeth. So it does have notable teeth for that would be at least effective at grabbing because they still have an edge to them. And they do show signs of abrasion. So likely they were indeed biting things and even occluding with each other. So rubbing and shearing against one another. They are widely spaced though. So not tight, once again, like in a dolphin's mouth. And there are some conflicting evidences. There were some wide spaces called diastema in between some of the teeth that would have made what they, as they said, it pre-processing difficult, you know, would have been slightly less efficient with those. And it had a wide and flat upper jaw, which would have been less resistant to biting forces. So it does seem like it was able to bite and doing biting, but it was not a super effective biter likely and had a wider head like a suction or filter feeder. So some of the features line up with that. It could have been filter feeding with the teeth, but they don't show any adaptations that would have helped with the water flow across them. And those larger spaces would have also made the filtering less efficient. And the palate does have sulci. So it does have some of those structures we often associate with baleen. But they did not enter the areas with the teeth. They converged on the upper portion of the cheek teeth. So if there was baleen, it's indicated that it likely wouldn't have gone past the length of the tooth based on this structure, and so probably wouldn't have been very useful to as baleen. They have interpreted that it likely lacked baleen, which disconnects the sulci and the baleen a bit, and was probably supplying blood to the gums instead. Though, they also know it's not sure these are the same sulci we find in other filter feeding. They could be similar structures that evolved convergently. All this together led them to interpret Lanocetus as a suction feeder, but still biting its prey. So sucking in prey and biting it, which could give an indication based on the age of this whale of how filter feeding whales started. Yeah, this, this could be an early behavior that paved the way for later adaptations for filtering. It could be uh, potential support for the suction feeding origin of that's where they started and then filter feeding came later on. The other big reason that Lanocetus gets so much attention is because it was big. Mm. It was about eight meters long, which for whales at the time was very large and is just a large animal in general, which if all the interpretations are correct that it did not have baleen and was indeed biting its prey, that would mean that large size preceded filter feeding and would kind of decouple those as well, as well in whales and meant that they did not get big because they became filter feeders, but their ancestors were already large. So this specimen has been looked at very heavily for indications as to what are the course of events in filter feeding in whales and what things begot what things and what things preceded which features. Yeah. And then, of course, it could also mean that some of these things showed up multiple times in whales. Yeah. That large size showed up multiple times, that those sulci might have showed up multiple times, so you could have multiple origins for these similar structures. Uh, so we don't fully know how our biggest filter feeders today definitely got to be the way they are. And so with that, we can start wrapping up our discussion on filter feeders. As we mentioned, we did not talk about a whole bunch <laughs> of organisms that we could have. 
because there's way too many. This is a this is an enormous, very abundant, very common lifestyle. So absolutely let us know if we skipped over your favorite. You can get in contact with us in many ways. You'll see the links down in the description. Send us the requests if there's something you wanted to hear about that we did not get to this episode. We've only ever done a few episodes on dietary strategies. Yep, yep. Uh, we did herbivores, like we mentioned, 173. We did sanguivores Which back very cool. in 134. It's always super cool to get to zero in on the dietary strategies. And then obviously it comes up in a lot of episodes because yes, it's yes. such an important aspect of being a living thing. Yeah, eating's important. Uh, eating is important. Don't forget, <laughs> make sure you do it. So it's always really cool. And this is a particularly interesting one because it isn't rare. Yes. Like sanguivory, which is feeding on blood, compared to other dietary styles. And it also, it's more like herbivory, but it, it's a, just a wholly different history and a wholly different set of adaptations. It's very cool to get to some of these foundational aspects of how animals live. Well, and it's especially weird because it, it overlaps with herbivory because you're eating the, the you're starting with the bottom of the food chain. That's what you're feeding on sure. is the, the beginning of the food chain. But a lot of the things are also very similar with predators. Yeah. Because, like, whales have to hunt the schools and find them, and you're catching these living organs. So, like, it's this weird blend of predator and herbivore that you don't usually get to see on in terrestrial environments because you can't really filter feed up here because we don't have plankton just saturating every breath of air that you could be mm-hmm. you could be feeding off of. So, a very cool topic. Absolutely. Before we wrap up the episode completely, we have one last section, and that is our patron question. As we mentioned earlier, we have a Patreon, and at certain levels on our Patreon, you can submit questions to us, which we will answer here on the podcast. And today we have a question from... Our patron question is from Kylie, who asks... Apart from filter feeders, hey, that's the, the, the thing we're talking about. Convenient. Apart from filter feeders, do any predatory insects or other arthropods consume their prey whole? If not, why? If so, uh, please elaborate. This is a great question. And it, yeah, is a kind of a weird feature of insect and arthropod predators that they don't tend to fully swallow their prey. So yeah, in vertebrates, we have a lot of examples, yeah. uh, you know, birds and reptiles and all sorts of stuff that will just gulp down a whole fish or a whole bug or whatever. Exactly. They don't dismember it. You know, they might chew it, but they still will just swallow the entire organism in one go. We don't see that with a lot of our insect predators. And I honestly could not find definitive research on the presence or absence of this. Yeah, I don't know of any arthropods that swallow prey Mm-mm. whole. There might be some with going after things like mites, which get ridiculously small. Sure, sure. And like in the question, uh, Kylie mentioned filter feeding. Yes, where, yes. Yeah, you are just taking in little tiny organisms that are particle sized. Though even many filter feeders often will then move it to their mouth parts where they might be processing. I didn't find any mm-hmm. details on that while I was doing my research for this episode. The biggest difference between us vertebrates and insects and you know, other arthropods like crustaceans, we have a mouth cavity. Our mouth is a space inside, you know, behind our teeth. Yes, the buccal cavity. The buccal cavity. Insects do have a buccal cavity, but their mouth is outside of that. 
and it's not enclosing it. They have mouth parts. Right. Do they have external? Right. Our chewing stuff is inside the mouth. Exactly. Their chewing stuff are surrounding the mouth or sometimes above it. Mm. And so their mandibles are very often repurposed limbs in many groups and function to dismember and chew apart the food to then put it into... It's not exactly the same as putting it directly into the esophagus. It's still a mouth, Mm -hmm. but it's not an open and closey mouth like ours is. So they process it before they even get it to the mouth. They don't have the same apparatus as us. And then many of them don't even have those chewy parts. They have siphons and stabbing implements. A lot of insect and arthropod mouth parts are adapted for sucking up or sponging up. Yes. Fluids. The ones that are doing chewing that are processing in that way are using external parts they're, yeah. they're doing that they're doing that outside of the mouth what it's much more similar to is if you've ever made pulled chicken or pulled pork and you're tearing it apart with your hands <laughs> and then you place each of those into your mouth that's what their mouth parts are doing is it's yeah dismembering and processing and mushing up the food so that they can then swallow it so it's yeah. not I, that it could be impossible for them to swallow something whole but their mouths are not constructed in a way to just bite and swallow, they have to grab it with their mouth parts and then put it into the buccal cavity. Yeah, so I don't know of any examples of arthropods that eat, like we said, aside from little tiny Mm -hmm. things, swallow prey whole, the way we think of like a swallowing a fish or something. I know invertebrates that can do it. There are snails and slugs that Mm -hmm. and leeches that can just eat, usually other soft-bodied inverts like worms. Sure. Well, and then there's like the cone snails that you'll see harpoon a fish and then just take the whole fish into the mouth. And they have, they are not hard-bodied like an insect. Mm -hmm. An insect can't expand itself that same way because they are dealing with a different kind of structure to their face. Yeah. Yeah, there are a number of vertebrates that do have adaptations in the musculature or the skeleton too wide in the mouth or mm-hmm. wide in the jaw. There are fish that are uh, uh, birds that do yes. I and mean, fish as well, but there are birds that I'm thinking of where the jaw actually kind of moves to the side a bit yes. to make more space. Insects and other arthropods often don't move that way. Yeah, they, they have to have hinges to do all of their moving. We have to have hinges on our bones, but our skin is stretchy. Theirs isn't usually. So if anyone out there knows of any arthropods, uh, that swallow their prey whole, like Kylie's asking for, let us know. Absolutely. I couldn't find any mention of it, but I don't know of any. The general reason they eat things differently than us otherwise is because their mouths are not mouths in the way we would think of a mouth. Yeah. They're a lot of, the best way I've seen it described often is there are a bunch of fingers on their face <laughs> that process the food before they swallow it. And that's what they're doing. Great question. Very fun to keep talking about the ways things eat and how weird it is. Thank you for that. Thank you for our requesters for requesting this topic. We had a lot of fun going through filter feeders and filter feeding strategies. Remember that today is the last day if you want to submit a question for the Q&A. Yes, the Q&A form closes on December 10th, which is the day this episode releases. Yep. So if you're if you're an early bird to this episode, there may still be time to get to go down to the episode description and click on the form and submit your question. We'll be answering those questions and releasing them right at the end of the year. Shortly after that, at the end of January, January 28th at 2 o'clock, we will be doing our anniversary live stream, so show up for that. We'll have news and announcements, and we'll be drawing our winners 
for the Patreon draw. So sign into that. And then finally, thank you to our top tier patron supporters, Sarah May, Daniel the Bug Lover, and Robert Mart. And with that, we can sign off. And thank you all for listening to us talk about filter feeding. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to everybody. I don't have like a good filter feeding pun. I'm gonna. Go, I, I had. I used it. Yeah, I yep. used it in the pterosaur discussion. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go make some soup so that I can suspension feed through your mustache. Yes. <laughs> you can just pour the soup over your mustache. I've seen. I've seen. Well, do you, you? He takes a big mouthful of soup and then just sprays it all out through the mustache and then absorbs all the little bits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> it's, it's just so much more efficient. I'm going to go swallow food whole. <laughs> just a whole. In front of an insect. Deva- <laughs> Take that. Can't even do this. And then it's going to fly away. And I'm going to, oh, well. Yeah. Oh. That's fine. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.